welcome to another episode of GER Cafe. I'm your host, Lainey. I'm pleased to be joined by the always amazing Sebastian Long for today's episode. We have a first for GER Cafe, which is actually a two-part episode. So I'm excited that today we have part one with Seb, where we're talking about methods. Specifically, why we sometimes see games user researchers getting hung up on methods. I'm not going to spoil anything else, but if you're interested in getting some context on how as researchers we can challenge ourselves to reach beyond that methods toolkit in our work, keep listening. We have a lot to talk about, so grab your favorite drink and let's jump right into today's episode. All right, welcome everyone. Another episode of our podcast and welcome Seb. Hello, how's it going? Thank Great. It's been a long time coming that we've been chatting about this. Thank you yes. so much for joining. Well, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. For maybe a couple of people that are listening, maybe not many, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Hello, my name is Sebastian Long. I'm the Managing Director of Player Research, a consultancy based in the UK and in Montreal. And we provide games user research services to the whole games industry, working with a range of developers, publishers, to uh, deliver insights into players and play. Uh, my background is as a games user researcher. I've worked on a couple of hundred uh, individual games, <clears throat> excuse me, across all uh, platforms, genres, and audiences. And now as managing director of the business, I work as a consultant to help game teams decide how they're gonna use player data to make the amazing video games that they want to make. We love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you so much for joining. You obviously have a wealth of experience about um, what I want to chat about today. I think we've been, we've done talks together, we've done articles together, we've we've danced around many of these topics um, mm. and lovely types of things that I like to chat about here. But I think this specifically has been one we've kind of gone back and forth on for a bit. Mm -hmm. Obviously, from the title of the episode for everyone listening, where we want to talk about uh, methods. So this was a subject that came up more specifically for me, I think several months ago, I had poked you about something and we were chatting or I don't really recall where this originated, but I do know that it's been many months <laughs> since we've been bouncing this idea around. But I do remember a specific discussion where I was kind of coming to you with some questions because I was working on training a lot of new researchers. Um, obviously, this is something that we both had experience with over the years and we've also kind of worked with a lot of more junior researchers through the mentoring program that mm -hmm. we're both a part of with the Grunk SIG um, and one thing that we've noticed a lot uh, with more of our junior researchers is just kind of a I'm going to say a tendency to overemphasize the importance mm -hmm. of their methods um, and this isn't to say that methods are not important I want to get that out of the gate immediately because that's <laughs> not the point that I'm trying to make with this conversation neither of us are uh, but I think it's more discussing the overemphasis which can certainly cause a lot of issues when the needs of the research specifically the methods themselves are prioritized over the needs of our stakeholders or our partners or the kind of the questions that are needed to help drive impact with those folks. And I personally see I've seen a lot of juniors falling into this trap of rushing into planning or establishing their method of the test before they have a really good understanding of the content, uh, the questions the teams has or what decisions need to be made. I think this comes up from time to time when you may have a partner come to you and be like, we would like a usability test, which is great. Love that they're adopting our terminology. We love to see that. But sometimes I think that creates a little bit of a false confidence because the researchers just takes it at face value. Like, okay, we're, we're going to do a, a usability test. Here's the things we typically do with a usability test. And we kind of start running down the road a little ways <laughs> before we kind of check and see, okay, what is it that you're hoping to get out of this test and things like that. So obviously um, when we prioritize the, the methods, this, this approach can still result in really interesting research, right? We're still doing really impactful research in many cases, but it might not always be 
actionable or relevant for the team. And I think that this can be impactful for morale of researchers when they're producing and putting their heart into a piece of research and it, it may not land with their partners. And obviously we're gonna get more into uh, the depth of all of these types of things, but that's kind of where we started from. Seb and I were kind of discussing this back and forth. Um, and we've been chatting about this topic a lot over the last couple of months, really, as we've been thinking about kind of coming into this discussion. So I want to kick things off immediately and ask you the question of why do you think games user researchers often get hung up on methods? Nice, super. Yeah, thanks. Uh, super interesting topic. You're right. I've enjoyed the last few months of thinking about this and sort of crystallizing, uh, crystallizing out some some ideas. Uh, I'll take one step back first before like th throwing throwing my opinions at the hung up on methods <laughs> question, and maybe just make sure we have a grounding on what we think methods are, or at least have like yep. a common shared uh, vocabulary here. So for me at least, and I uh, encourage you to disagree, uh, methods are groups of processes uh, in research that have been bundled together because they're they're valid and they're valuable if they're put together and because they're very powerful at generating new information. So for example, user, uh, user testing or usability testing is a combination of lots of individual processes of one-to-one -one observation, of setting tasks for individual users, uh, of semi-structured interviews, maybe some benchmarking, things like that. So those are individual things we can do, individual activities bundled into uh, a method called usability testing. Do you want to expand on that or like? Push no, I, I, I think that's fair. And I think a lot of it comes from kind of this adoption of what we learn in academia. Many mm -hmm. of us have at least some nature of like research 101, mm -hmm. research methods 101, if you have any most research related degrees. Um, so I, I think it's that we're kind of applying a lot of those really interesting foundations within the context of kind of the usability testing or kind of the specific games user research element. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And so in the user research setting, as you say, those method, research methods used also everywhere in the world, you know, all sorts of different uh, contexts. In our user research setting, which I think is what sets both our hearts on fire, you know, why we're working in a supply space, is because you have to uh, use uh, inform the development of a product. In, in this case, a video game. Yes. So not just methods, but methods are valid and actionable in informing the design of a product. And as you say, they've sort of like clung together. They've been lumped together uh, in in useful ways that have been given names. Uh, they're a little bit fluid in some cases and rigid in others. Yes. Um, so. Uh, why do games user researchers get hung up on methods? Super, super interesting question. Uh, first of all, like you already alluded to it in the introduction, like I don't think it's a, it's not always a problem that user researchers can, can get hung up on methods. As I say, I wanted to sort of align myself to that as well, that for a long time in a, in a user researcher's, especially early career, they're spending a long time practicing and doing their 10,000 hours on those methods. Um, and it's super useful to, uh, have this language of methods, relatively universal uh, descriptors of how these methods come together. Um, uh, but it, as you say, I think it is certainly possible to be to over-index. Methods only get you so far uh, in thinking and in, in being a, a great user researcher. So I've enjoyed thinking about that. At what point does proficiency in methods stop making you a better user researcher? Or another way of putting it, uh, Method, proficiency in methods does not make you the best user researcher you can be. Yes. So how do you work out when to shift your attention away from the execution of these like, uh, or the practice of these uh, sort of well-structured um, processes? I think I think that's an interesting kind of problem space as well, because I know when I'm kind of teaching my most kind of entry level juniors, it's like, OK, the next year or however long mm -hmm. your foundation knowledge is methods. I mm -hmm. want you to understand the methods. I want you to understand how to apply them in this context. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of like you reach a point where there's like the diminishing returns because mm -hmm. you're never going to be proficient in every method. Mm -hmm. I, I, I firmly believe that. And people will probably disagree with me because I think that I was a researcher for many years. I, I don't do research itself anymore. I teach other people how to do that. And I think there is 
a lot of anxiety around like, well, I don't have a good grasp on every method. Mm-hmm. It's like, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. Like I I've there's some things that I've done and some things that I still haven't done, but I understand at a conceptual level how it's supposed to be executed. And so I think that it's this interesting trade-off between learn your foundations, but then not get completely overwhelmed by the fact that like your foundation can be enormous because there's a large kind of breadth of knowledge around all of these different types of methods and how you can manipulate them that it can, I think, can create an even bigger sense of overwhelm. Absolutely. So I think that it's obvious from those points, like how we got to the point where you know, methods is, has such richness and importance to the conversation about user research, because as you said, the number of methods you've ex- you've used or you've executed in industry or the ones that you understand well enough to be accountable to executing or project managing is kind of like the currency of in, for for a long time in your career of how good you are, yes. especially in your early career. Yes. Your, the the hiring, the, how we make choices between candidates if we're recruiting them is okay one of those variables is okay what's the breadth of their research experience uh, up to a point and there's uh, usually a test that involves some sort of evaluation of their oh, approach to methods yeah which is absolutely. pretty standard for everyone absolutely so they'll be given a task in in, in the interview process uh, usually about you know a game development scenario uh, this can happen you know many more than once of course in the interview process uh, how would you approach this will be the question how would you approach this particular development context tell me about the research that you would run uh, so yeah, the ability to apply research to development context is is a, is a measure of someone's relative maturity, their experience, and as I say, the breadth of things they've done in the past, either in other jobs or in, in academia, is used to, as I say, uh, indicate uh, their value, potential yes. value to a business. So very very important to the hiring process. And so uh, what what's been clear, I think, as we've been talking this through, you know, prior to the, the, the uh, this recording, is that uh, that currency or the uh, respect for the breadth of experiences methods uh, can overwhelm uh, or can be substituted for complete proficiency like but, but that's not the case that's a fallacy your proficiency as a user researcher when you reach a certain point of your career is no longer defined by the number of research methods you've executed or how well you own them or how you know how quickly you can turn around a report whatever but by other things and so we're back to your question uh, the, the, the topic of the podcast uh, why do we why is it important? How do we get hung up on research methods? Why is it important that we don't get hung up on research methods? Is so you can make that jump from uh, that early career stage where it matters to the mid and late career stage where it starts to matter less, less. Um, so I've got quite a lot of, uh, I've jotted down some thoughts on why I think it's important to think beyond this toolkit. Uh, I can go a few of you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on them as well. Yeah, Maybe you sure. have experience of any of that, that'd be great. So why is it important to, to not get hung up on methods? First of all, I'd say that this, there's a bit of a fallacy concerning standard methods, that there's a lot of history of user research in lots of different domains. You, know, you can track it way back. As I've said, the history of user research is really rich. Uh, but all this long history, in my view, makes these standard methods, ones that we've heard of, appreciation testing, usability testing, et cetera, seem a lot more rigid and a lot more standardized than they actually are. In my experience, and perhaps in yours as well, it's clear that you know they're, they're just a dotted line around a series of activities, and they're in, incredibly flexible. And they need to be flexible to, especially in video game development, uh, to account for different projects, different teams, different contexts. You know, different game genres, even need completely different uh, research methods. And so uh, there's a, a there comes a point where if you're so rigidly stuck to this toolkit of you know I know how to execute a user test it's going to use 6p and then I'm going to do this and this and this and this is how long my interview is going to be etc then you're over indexing on that sort of the rigidness of those standard methods uh, to the detriment of the quality of the research it's not you're not being flexible enough matching the the content I think it's a fear of being non-rigorous Absolutely. Yeah. And because I think especially when you come because I think it's it's difficult for people to recognize that like research happens on like a it's a it's a line, right? Where it's like you have theory on one end and you have applied on one side and it's like mm-hmm. these things are not one or better than the other. It's it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. And your role is evaluating where you sit on that continuum at any given time. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you have to be and you can be controlled and you can control your variables. You can be very rigorous. You can be very 
kind of squared, right? Where it's like, okay, this is very well defined. Everything kind of has its boundary. And then other times it's chaos. And you have to be able to embrace that level of uncertainty and still deliver and operate within the framework that has been given to you because in many times as we all know game development is dynamic also acute like also could be replaced with chaotic because <laughs> <laughs> you can't always control and so i think it's when you come from or you have a when you're learning methods it's also it's often in a kind of controlled type mm -hmm. of scenario or controlled environment or when we talk about them we talk about controlling for our variables and it's important to still do that it's just sometimes we have to recognize we have to compromise on certain elements mm -hmm. and i think that like you said when you're talking about something like appreciation or these kind of big huge kind of ideas that are often linked to a specific method mm -hmm. again it doesn't always factor in for a lot of the individual differences of not only our players, but the individual differences between the genres or the intentions behind that, because you can have something in a specific genre that has very different intentions and design goals, because mm -hmm. maybe they choose to violate those goals mm -hmm. of the classic kind of genre. And so I think it's you have to be able to kind of have that foundational knowledge, but being able to recognize when it's okay to cut or be free or, mm -hmm. and it's situating yourself on that line most Absolutely. often. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I really like that. Uh, it's the idea of standing on the shoulders of uh, the work that's been done in the past to adapt and uh, to grow and match the context that you're, that you're working thinking to my career when this in these scenarios have risen there's like there's two, two certainly two key categories of that the first of those is just being handed crazy products like you say you know trying to work out how we're going to adapt standard methods to work on guitar hero for example like you know not a lot of the standard uh, measures work with that particular product yes you have to you know you have to really hybridize and really think outside the box for how we're going to measure success of a, uh, of this you know strange peripheral using musical very fast reaction timey game so there's like definitely lots of complexity inherited into, into, the, into the product you have to be ready to be flexible with but but also with the there's a social side uh so you've mentioned about games and audiences and, and, and uh, complexities there but there's also just the stakeholders the stakeholders yes. of any individual piece of research right and so st sticking to the standard methods this, this is an applied discipline a lot of these methods are focused on product improvement but they're not necessarily these standard methods designed to be particularly persuasive to, uh, you know, non-product stakeholders, for example, uh, you know, someone that's holding the purse strings uh, way up the business. If they've lost confidence in your product, you know, you need to be ready to reconsider, use the, use the toolkit you have, yes, but reconsider what it means to be persuasive uh, and actionable to this, these completely le you know, left ball um, stakeholders. So yeah, there's, there's product challenges to overcome that you need to think outside the box for. And there's also potentially socio-political, you know, studio internal um, curveballs you've got to be ready for to think outside the box with your method design. So yeah, important not to get hung up on methods um, in both those scenarios. Rather than entering the conversation you know, with, this, with this toolkit of methods, in both those scenarios, the answer to me is, do you start with the risks? Like you, you have to start. Yes as you said at the top of the uh, podcast with an assessment of the risks and the questions that the team have and their context and not you know come into the room with just okay these are the types of answers i can give you with the methods that i know uh, what you know pick from the menu well, it's running in and being like here's my hammer i'm going to build a house it's like yeah, you exactly. don't, <laughs> you can't just come in and have this kind of prescribed idea and i think that it's it's okay to kind of have a general framework with somebody if, if a partner says like okay you know we want to do a usability test like okay i understand roughly kind of maybe what they're looking for here but i need to go in and have a conversation with them to really understand and kind of going to this idea of what you were saying with kind of assessing kind of these more stakeholder or social or political conversations that 
research is used and applied to be able to help people make decisions, be informed, um, I think it's important to be able to recognize that if you're kind of focusing on one specific method, you may be delivering information that's not actually what they needed or creates misunderstandings in a lot of cases because they think they're getting the information that they need, but it's not really the information that they wanted, but they don't always know the difference. It's not up to them to kind of understand the intricacies of the the way in which we're collecting a lot of that data. It's they have their expertise and we have ours and we're all kind of working collectively to deliver the best experience. And so it's kind of approaching that from, okay, we're all in this together and I want to be able to understand how I can help and provide impact and be able to help you feel confident making that decision. Mm, really nice. Uh, I think in a related way, talking about the the challenges of being an applied research discipline um, is that uh, and sort of second of these reasons why it's important not to get hung up on methods is that a lot of the methods, the standardized methods are really monocular, which is to say they have a real laser focus on a particular kind of product flaw or product risk or a certain type of feedback or data that they're designed to really acutely produce. You gave the example of uh, an appreciation test, for example, uh, where we're bringing in, I don't know, perhaps 30 or so, hopefully, individuals in the general public to give a sort of sentiment, uh, their sentiment of the game, their feelings during gameplay self-reported. Um, you know, th that's a, a relatively standardised method. It's probably the, the least standardised of all the games user research methods. But nonetheless, this idea of bringing in a lot of people, putting them in front of the game and, see, and seeing how they react to it in a sort of semi-structured way. Uh, that's fantastic. That standard method is fantastic for getting that kind of data, but it's generally really poor at capturing, for example, nuanced usability feedback because it rarely includes uh, detailed observation of a single player, rarely includes the ability to perhaps uh, follow up or set tasks with an individual because we, you know, we're too busy getting on with the getting these big groups in and out of the in and out of the playtest lab. I think it also like, assumes that there aren't usability issues. Of course, of course, yeah, <laughs> of course, and, so, and that's yes, exactly what I'm saying. That the the method is really fine tuned uh, by you know uh, over the years, fine tuned to find one particular piece of data, but it can entirely miss a whole suite of reasons this product will fail, and so the uh, the over focus sometimes, as you say, on uh, certain types of data, especially anything to do with fun, which is going to be obviously you know top of the yep. team's list, is like working out whether the game is fun or not. Um, it is a real risk, and so the tool and the toolkit that we have is is, is so monocular and so focused, laser focused, that can be uh, worse for the product unless we're actually combining methods meaningfully or thinking, okay, well, yeah, we could do a, a large lab, we could do an experiential test, but actually maybe that's not the right uh, lens for the project right now because we haven't done our diligence. Um, to use nice. your house building analogy, with you know we've, we're building the top floor before we finish the foundations in some ways. Yes, well, it's it's understanding why they feel they need this information right now because most likely they're trying to make a decision right they either they need to quickly validate that this is the thing that we want to do it's working okay we want to continue with this design and so there's often ways that you can kind of break that down into smaller chunks that make it a bit more actionable and saying like okay let's do this small piece first and then we'll do this longer mm -hmm. piece bigger more expensive whatever piece in a little bit once we kind of confirm that these mm -hmm. the base of the house right where it's like we're addressing those understanding we're addressing the usability we're kind mm -hmm. of getting those bottom segments really locked in to ensure that we can give an accurate picture of whether or not players are enjoying themselves mm -hmm. or whether or not they actually find it fun <laughs> and you kind of have to be able to think it's it's challenging and I think it's it's difficult for a lot of people when they come in because they're trying they have to consider so many pieces mm -hmm. other than just the research right mm -hmm. like you're going to be doing research like really kind of undercuts all of the other stuff they have mm -hmm. to do and so I think a lot of people and I've seen this a lot with juniors coming in it's like I didn't realize I was going to have to have all of these conversations with mm -hmm. partners and understand game design as much as I need to and play the game as much as I needed to. Mm -hmm. And it kind of creates this really interesting situation where they realize like, 
oh, actually doing the research is like 10% of my job. (laughs) And that there's so many other pieces that go into it because you're you're not creating the problem space, Mm -hmm. right? Often when we're potentially, right, depending on your situation in academia, you're probably identifying some sort of problem. Mm -hmm. You're identifying how you want to approach this problem. Maybe there's some sort of framework that you're following of expected outcomes or expected behaviors, expected methods, things like that. But ultimately, you do tend to have a bit of a control over the direction that you want to go. We don't always have that when we're in this applied setting because we can't always dictate well the research needs this many people to be viable and this needs and this needs to be this way and we need to have the build this way and it's like well sorry the build just literally doesn't function Mm -hmm. that way Mm -hmm. you're gonna have to cheat you're gonna have to ghost players to an area you're gonna have to just verbally explain to them what they're Mm -hmm. supposed to be seeing and all of these things are very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's not controlled it's not the same as how you would approach because the problem space is not inherently kind of created by us we share that problem space with our partners and we have to kind of identify how do we move past this Mm -hmm. how do we identify what pieces of information help us to get past this problem Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a collective collaborative effort it's not just us deciding oh we should do this and that'll help Mm -hmm. because we don't often have enough of the big picture to always understand the direction or the constraints, whether it be people hours or financial constraints or what have you, technical constraints, right? Mm -hmm. I know a lot of times the games I've worked on, it was like, hey, we'd love to implement this suggestion, but like the engine doesn't allow us to do that. (laughs) And it's like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I think those examples point out perfectly the 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 the, like the the point at which it stops being useful to come at those conversations and those contexts with a flowchart and be like oh i know how to run the kind of test it looks like this (laughs) like just does not i hope that's a a perfect elaboration on on the mindset that you need to adopt it's hyper flexible hyper dynamic ready for those curveballs of all this super uncomfortable just like incredibly uncomfortable and Uh still trying to forge a place where you can do good enough research that you can put your name to and you can be proud of to, to, to drive the product forward and like yes. for me skirting that line is super i'm super passionate about that super exciting to try and carve out a, in this very dynamic chaotic space you know a, bobbing on top of the crazy ocean of game development trying still to make to find some sense and find some direction uh talking of chaos my last of my like research, research methods uh, aren't a great sort of mental model mm-hmm. is thinking about uh, the longer projects and how because you have this flow chart there can be a sort of bias towards, uh, you know, finishing it off, especially these last, very long projects or anything that lasts more than a couple of weeks and yes. starts to take up, you know, valuable time and could potentially be subdivided. Uh, this idea of a, of a sort of waterfall method of, of a research method um, becomes a bit of a crutch, right? Because you, uh, they feel like they're unstoppable. They feel like they possibly can't be pivoted if you're just following this list of instructions. You have to be rigorous. You have to be controlled. You have to make sure that you're not introducing new bias. Absolutely. Right. We have to follow the plan. Exactly. But unfortunately, (laughs) nothing goes to plan, uh, as you've suggested. And that's more like things are more likely to go off the rails with very long projects, things like play diaries or persona generation or anything that lasts more than a couple of weeks, full game playthroughs. You know, I'm sure you've got examples too of of sort of standard methods that last a little bit uncomfortably long, long enough to go off the rails a bit. Um, So there's a, yeah, there's a bit of a, uh, a risk there that feeling like oh I've got to execute this method from start to finish um, because that's how the method is done doesn't let you be dynamic enough uh, and reorient your project or pivot the project if things are going wrong or if the context changes or if you're you've either you've learned enough or to stop the project maybe halfway through or you realize you've not learned enough or we need to yes. pivot what we're doing um, yeah I yeah I mean I think it's it's interesting because I think it's making changes or looking at like we need to maybe this isn't working or the goals have changed or something has changed it can feel really scary to think about introducing some sort of bias Mm -hmm. um 
obviously we want to control for the bias, but I am very much of the camp that like sometimes we can introduce a bias and we just have to recognize that it's there. I think especially for me, I'm always because ever like I often will get into kind of arguments or discussions with folks who are like, well, you know, we can't do this because we're introducing the bias. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, they're standing inside Ubisoft. How much more biased can we possibly <laughs> make them? <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of thinking through like all of these little tiny interactions that are happening mm-hmm. um, and just being able to recognize that like, yeah, maybe we did introduce a bias or we mm-hmm. had to make a change, but understand the consequence Mm -hmm. right you have to be able to look at that and say okay if i make this decision and the players are exposed to this information or something's going to happen what does that mean what is the consequence for my data Mm -hmm. and as long as you have your north star of this is the data that the team needs to make a decision moving forward you can assess whether or not that risk is worth it Mm -hmm. and you can assess whether or not we need to change, we need to mm-hmm. stop, we need to rethink, we need to introduce something different, mm-hmm. we need to stop doing the thing that we were doing mm-hmm. or cancel the research altogether, but you have to be able to be willing to check yourself against that and say, you know what, we're not going in the direction that's going to help us to deliver that thing that mm-hmm. we said that we would. Yeah, perfectly agree. Uh, and I think that that clearly points out this the, the, I think the way that you and I see these methods, which is really just a big pile of jigsaw puzzle pieces that can be, you know, take it if we decide we're not, we don't like the picture we're, we're, we're creating, we just, you know, break it back down and build it back up in a different shape uh, to try and uh, help the team. And even if you're in the middle of a study, you know, if we've, we've yes. managed to win, uh, you know, a really long and interesting study, potentially really impactful study, uh, we can't let the or the the fallacy of okay we must see this method through to the end in the way that we designed it at the start you know waste this time and let let it take the team off track or, or potentially just deliver uh, useless insights at the end so yeah really important not to get too hung up on the holistic sort of um, the structure of the method and remain agile throughout yes and that takes a particular kind of confidence as you say yeah I've I've had this experience before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know we were talking a bit about the one of the diary studies that I've done. I've talked about there's talks available online mm-hmm. of the long term diary study that I had done at one point on Siege, where I think that was probably one of the most pivotal learning experiences for me as a researcher in so many ways because of a lot of the decisions that I was forced to make. Mm-hmm. It so for context the learning study was a um 10 week long diary study following players learning rainbow six siege so we were bringing players in who had purchased the game already showed an interest in the game who played a couple of hours and we basically followed them over the course of 10 weeks playing the game um we, it was quite exploratory in nature. We had some specific goals that we were looking for. There was a kind of a few expected outcomes, but a lot of it was kind of just, let's see what we can get. We just want to understand how players are learning the game, how they're experiencing it. They had a couple of things like, you know, if we make these changes, is this going to help, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, yeah, we had this very expensive, very large piece of research that took many, many months to prepare. And, you know, I it was one of the first pieces of research I did on Siege. Mm-hmm. And so I was quite new to the production still. I was still really getting to know a lot of the partners. I felt quite confident that I had done my do- my homework in understanding where I needed to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we, yeah, we spent all of this time preparing these tools and kind of, okay, we're going to do these daily diaries and this is how we're going to assess learning in Siege. And week two, I realized it was not going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like looking through like our checklists of like, okay, here's how we're going to assess learning. Here's the behaviors that we're looking for. Here's how we're going to observe. We had these like just I designed this thing to death like I was prepared for any deviation we had spreadsheets and mind maps and like all sorts of tracking and 
Oh, I just I remember the moment that I was like, oh no, <laughs> I I did this wrong. I I think I'm being too restrictive. I think I'm being too kind of prescriptive towards mm-hmm. things. I think we need to be a lot more flexible. I think we need to just react to how the players are experiencing. It's going to be significantly more work. And I remember everyone around me being like why are you doing this to us? <laughs> because we we completely scrapped um, a fairly significant chunk of data from two weeks of the study and recreated how we were going to observe um, different behaviors and how we would translate that into longer term learnings. Obviously, this had impacts on the study in how we could talk about what happened in those first couple of weeks. We didn't lose the data or delete it entirely. It's just we couldn't make a lot of comparisons back to those really early days. Mm-hmm. And the way that we were making comparisons had to fundamentally change. So we, I, I very quickly made the decision that like, this is going to be a very expensive mistake. Mm-hmm. And we, I remember I got a a colleague of mine, another researcher who was not on the project, but was um, on the game with me. And I was like, all right, we got to rethink this. We got like two hours. And we just sat down and we just kind of went through and we created a completely new mind map and the way that we wanted to evaluate and observe. And we told our, our partners of like, hey, listen, we ended up realizing that we weren't going to end where we thought we wanted to. So we made these adjustments you know, you're still going to get data. We're just going to have to look at it a little bit differently. And we accounted for that in all of the many reports and everything that we did long term. But I do truly believe that it saved that study in a very Mm -hmm. meaningful way because we Mm -hmm. still delivered really impactful results. Because again, in the end, it was quite exploratory. We weren't trying to be perfectly square about defining every single thing like at player at player hour six players do this 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 and this we really leaned into you know like i've watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of people playing siege i'm going to lean into my expertise and really be able to say this is what i think is happening and here's the data that i have to back it up and yeah we had to make that significant pivot and not everybody understood or agreed and ultimately like we did introduce some bias because we had to change some things. We had to change some of our questions and we had to let players know like, hey, you're not answering this diary anymore. You're doing this diary now. And But ultimately, like we, we accepted that sacrifice because we were able to deliver that really meaningful insight that the team needed in the end. And it, it was fine, right? Mm-hmm. We recovered. We, knew, we had still had eight weeks ahead of us. Had we continued down that path, we would have had significantly more data than we would have needed, mm-hmm. right? Because I was still like, collect all of the data. Like I was still very much in that mindset of like, I need everything to like mm-hmm. feel confident because more data equals confidence, right? When you're mm-hmm. a junior. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I need to get all this information. And then very quickly, it was kind of like my whole mindset and approach towards research changed over the course of that that study because I really saw the importance of I need to deliver on the question. I need to deliver on the information that the team really needs rather than, well, we committed to doing this. And so we already spent all of the time creating these tools. We should use them. And yeah, we we basically just stopped a lot of hours of work and we just had to move on. But Amazing. I think it was it was a big learning experience for me and a lot of those that worked with me on the project to really kind of, oh, wow, okay, we can do this. We can use our expertise. We can take that step back and say, Ooh, <laughs> maybe yeah. this wasn't the right approach mm-hmm. in the moment when I was planning. Extraordinary. Uh, for anyone that hasn't watched the talk, I guess they definitely should. I think it's, uh, and thanks very much for sharing it. I mean, it's not, it's not the easiest thing, I'm sure, to stand up uh, one of the SIG events and talk about something that didn't go to plan. But for me, this is, you know, among the most definitive examples that's ever been talked about in games user research of, uh, of exactly this mindset. You know, you could easily have gotten hung up on the prescriptive, you know, this is, this is the plan, this is what we're going to stick to. Yeah, when I was violating a lot of rules when I made those changes, rules that I felt like were my guiding light as a researcher and to say like, 
I'm not going to do that. And I have to accept this mistake because mm -hmm. it's going to have an impact on how much impact I can have. Absolutely. And you, and you went in that moment from a, a method executor to a project manager. And, you yep. know, that that project, as you've rightly said, uh, has had has had a lasting impact on your mindset. And it's clear why. Uh, and, and it was almost certainly impacted every product you've ever done, uh, ever worked on since. Yes. One hundred percent, because it it definitely was. I think that over the course of that study, I really did grow in my mm -hmm. approach as research, mm -hmm. and I think it really did change me in kind of how I I worked with my partners and really mm -hmm. making sure that I was really putting in the time to understand those needs mm -hmm. and being willing to say. I need to make this change or I'm going to try a new method and be able to accept that like, all right, the method we did maybe wasn't the best, but mm -hmm. we still got this information. We're going to tweak that next time. And, and these are okay. Right. It's, it's either the team makes a decision without any data or you come to them and you're like, Hey, I have this little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and yeah, what, from the first point, I guess, as you say, sticking to the standard method in fact, I mean in first of all you know it wouldn't have got you the data that you needed for the specific context but moreover risk to derailing the whole project and lastly not treating this method my last point there was not not treating this diary this project as a monolithic unstoppable you know it must yes. be finished it must get to the end or we'll have no data that's a that's a, that's a fallacy and uh, you know you, as you say you did well to to pivot it in the right direction and ended up turning what could have been a, a big L into a win uh, for the whole 100%. team. So yeah, a, fa a fantastic, the example, a fantastic example, certainly of uh, n not getting so hung up on the prescriptive method that you undermine uh, the work that you were contributing and your and the colleagues as well. Um, so certainly a lot there about operations and project management, like all three of those points uh, of the reasons I've talked about so far have been a lot about operations. Um, but you've also alluded, I think, wonderfully to the social side of this and that it's not just about what the methods ask you to do, but the processes, the methods, the processes in those methods, their inability to win necessarily social or credibility. Um, so this is I much more about how the so how methods interact with. Yeah, I know it's, it's <laughs> such, such a huge topic. Uh, how you know methods are not credibility, and and well, they're not, not only trust. They, they're, they're not trust. I they're think not, it's both, right? Because I think you have to you have to have trust in the team you have to be able to build that trust yeah. to gain credibility and credibility is the currency of influence yes 100 percent. i love that can i get it on a t-shirt that's perfect <laughs> <laughs> and i think it's 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 the mistake that a lot of people make where it's knowing your methods and being really knowledgeable in your domain mm -hmm. does not equal to having trust absolutely agree absolutely agree and so knowing everything you can about how to run the best you know insert method here is not going to win you the opportunity to influence the people around you, to influence the product, to get you to do the research that you need to be able to do. And so it's really important to not get hung up on methods as your primary force of influence in the teams that you're working with. Methods, uh, you, you already mentioned, I think we both mentioned at the top that this uh, methods are kind of unique to user research, right? They, they do define us. Um, uh, uh, among the professionals, among as a voice inside the game development team, um, but that but the problem with that is that not a lot of people outside of the user research domain understand those methods fully, uh, and so yeah, they really don't have much currency. They have huge currency inside; they're about hiring, but outside of the game uh, game user research sphere, they they might not win you the support that you need to have influence yes. on the product. But we we talked about um, democratization. You br you briefly mentioned it about the energy you can pour into teaching your non-user research colleagues about what good user research is and maybe help them even conduct their own uh, research sessions in order to educate them about the importance of it. Uh, but in my view, that will never be quite enough. Even if you are fully democratized and embed all of your possible energies into democratizing and educating your colleagues, it will never be quite enough. You will have to know more than methods and they have to know more than methods to trust you and the contribution you're going to make to yeah, well, uh, methods project. doesn't always equal good research. No, absolutely. Like not. focusing on that and being able to carry out a method from start to finish doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. that guarantee you that you're going to get the data right. And I like, think that's the problem. Sometimes I'm very much for democratization of research to be clear, but I think that it can fall flat when 
there's a lack of understanding of why this method is used or how it can be very powerful in some settings and not as useful or powerful in some and being able to connect a lot of those pieces i think having this real like hard approach and hard focus on methods really undercuts the value that you have as a researcher because it's it's one piece in this like very rich dynamic kind of approach that you can bring and methods really helps us as a kind of jumping off point but it's not the end all be all of being able to provide the the impact that is is needed absolutely agree um i'll make a bold statement and see if you agree i think as your as your career progresses uh conversations become more powerful than research uh, absolutely 100 percent. I've, I've said that many a time here on the podcast i think that you start to get a point where and i've seen this with like mid-level researchers mm -hmm. right where they're kind of just like they get stuck because they're still really emphasizing a lot on the methods they can't recognize that they're like they're frustrated because teams aren't acting on their research they're not acting on the findings or they're locked out of some of these discussions you know like mm -hmm. the black box of iteration is still very much closed off to them these director discussions how decisions are being made why they're ignoring results they don't have this context and so they continue to kind of doing what they're doing with methods and you do hit a point where it's that you you can only go so far mm -hmm. and i do see this with a lot of people and, and you can kind of recognize this moment i remember um someone on my team a, a, a while back when he kind of came to me and was like i get it mm -hmm. <laughs> like it just suddenly registered to him that he was like I need to like go communicate more with people. I need to be in the room because I think people make this mistake of I need to produce something mm -hmm. and come to the table with something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where it's that they think that they need to give their opinion on everything. Research needs to provide evidence for everything. And it's like, no, no, no. I just want you to sit at the table. Just shut, just, just shut, just shut, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. be quiet. Just go and listen, mm -hmm. right? Go and understand how they talk about things. How do they make decisions? What type of information do they use when they're talking about making decisions? You don't have to always go to the table with something to share. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can share something by just asking the question, challenging them, mm -hmm. right? And it's not always about a method. Sometimes huh? it's about just sitting in the corner and being like, mm, sorry, I have a question. <laughs> and that's, that's super powerful. That's influence, but you have to you have to have the knowledge of the foundations mm -hmm. first because that helps build trust, it helps build credibility and all of that helps you get to that point of influence, but mm -hmm. you do have to kind of tip the scales at some point where you're talking about research and talking about re doing research far more than you're actually doing it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh for for reference, I guess, uh I don't think I think it's certainly possible to have a meaningful career and to have a to, to be meaningfully and gainfully employed and offer value to your employer. If you want to stop at that point, I think there's, there's well, a lot of fantastic researchers that don't want to make the leap of the the huge chasm that you've just described. You know, and it's apparent to lots of people when they get to that point in their career that it is a huge chasm gap between the skills that they have and the skills that they need. And so, for sure, you can be a um, you know, fantastic method, method executor and uh, contributor and etc. But you're absolutely right that, uh, beyond a certain point, though, the scales tip and you have to be a, a, a fantastic influencer and communicator um, and persuader and question asker <laughs> in order to progress that career and influence in games user research, you know, up and up and up until eventually, you know, that direct director level or above. Um, so, yeah, a really fantastic lens, I think, an examination of why. Um, methods are powerful to a point useful knowledge to a point but you can't risk getting hung up hung up on them you have to turn your sort of turn your eye outwards to uh to, to the influence you could you could possibly have uh, yes. just having conversations and sending the right email you know sending that, yeah. that email that asks the right question on a tuesday morning that's really important um all right i've got one more reason not to get hung up on methods that i thought was really important and maybe poignant uh and that is that they are relatively stagnant 
and that uh, things happen like pandemics happen <laughs> and technology changes <laughs> and uh, and even things that are less global happen that can completely change the horizon and the, the opportunities you have and the money that is available and you know the people that you're going to work with both up and down yes and that those methods you know as they're designed and described in a book uh, immediately outdated by massive changing global uh, yes. circumstances but also just you know the, the changing nature of an individual business as they bob up and down you know relative to their budgets and the success etc um, so you have to be yeah it's a different kind of adaptability one that can really pull the rug out from underneath you but you know if, if we were stuck all only knowing how to do usability tests in person through direct observation we'd have all been sat twiddling our thumbs for the last couple of years yeah. uh, where you know the pandemic has prevented in various regions uh the, the the approachability and the legality of running in-person sessions and so yeah don't don't over index on those methods because something's going to come out of the woods and, and uh, turn the table over yeah i mean and i think that's been a really good exercise for a lot of people to stretch and think a bit about how we can approach things in a bit of an unconventional way, being okay with introducing some level of bias or mm -hmm. introducing some little kind of uncontrolled variable mm -hmm. and being able to just say, you know, we can't account for these things, but here's what we can account for. Mm -hmm. We don't have to always be apologizing for the things that we can't control. Mm -hmm. And I think that it gets really easy when everyone's like, disclaimer, disclaimer, and they're like, this thing didn't work and this thing didn't work. And it's like yeah that that's life and mm -hmm. and that's okay this isn't everything perfect and exact science all the time and sometimes we can control for it and everything can be very you know it can be very rigorous and controlled and we can make sure that we're not introducing any bias but sometimes we have to sacrifice or else you're never going to be able to do any research you're never going to be able to deliver anything mm -hmm. and you just have to say here's what i am certain about mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than wasted time in game development. You know, we've got there are very limited windows for everything and they are closing fast. And so working on how to deal with that with that bias and the changing circumstances, I think, is incredibly important. And yes, you do have to put in your 10,000 hours into standard research methods just to make sure that, you, you know, you feel comfortable, comfortable standing up and taking a punt on some of these method designs or you know, changes to the standards. Um, but but absolutely right. That's ab absolutely right. on. Uh, making sure that we're you know, confident on that front. So we've got another topic that we want to get to, but we're mm -hmm. running out of time. So I'm proposing mm -hmm. we continue things into a part two. Okay. If you're if you're up for it. Sounds good to me. And so we're going to end this one here for everybody listening. We're going to keep talking, but it's going to be <laughs> in a separate recording <laughs> for everyone else. Making so, me wait. What a cliffhanger. We're going to we're going to leave it here. Please join us for the part two of this episode, because we're actually going to expand on how we think beyond that toolkit. Right. A lot of it, kind of what we've been building up to for this last little bit of thinking, OK, we know that we shouldn't overemphasize. We know that, that we should kind of expand and think. But how do we start building that mindset? How do we build that approach? So catch us on the next one and <laughs> Seb is going to share his wisdom and knowledge and we're going to continue discussing on Perfect. this topic. Super.